Welcoming Church. Um, I'm Anthony. If I don't know you, I'm one of the elder interns here. And as our brother said, all of the uh, pastors are gone today, so we had to pull from the ranks. And um, here I am with you. So uh, we're going to be going to the uh, Old Testament prophet Haggai. Yeah, and we're going to look at the whole first chapter together. So if you want to start making your way there. Um, a little bit of a disclaimer. Uh, I have a cold, a lingering cold and cough as well. It seems to rear its head at the most inopportune times. So I've been praying that God would be gracious to all of us, that I wouldn't have a fit up here, and that it wouldn't distract from our time in his word with us. But I know it's bad form if I'm drinking water and having a cough drop, but I hope you'll forgive me and bear with me this morning for that. So Haggai, the first chapter, it's a third book from the Old Testament. If you can find your way there, and so long as you're physically able to stand for the reading of God's Word out of reverence to God and His Word, it's page 883 in my Bible, if that helps, Um, and I'll be reading from the, thank you, brother. And I'll be reading from the English Standard Version this morning. So Haggai, the first chapter, beginning in verse 1, the word of the Lord reads, In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua the son of Jehozadak the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say that the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways, go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house, that I may take pleasure in it, and that I might be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little, and when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce, and I have called for a drought in the land and on the hills and on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on men and beast, and on all their labors. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message, I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, on the, in the sixth month, on the second year of Darius the king. This is the word of the Lord. Let's go to the Lord one more time in prayer before we begin. Our God and Father, we thank you so much, Lord. We thank you that you have called us out to be your own. We thank you that you have provided a way to be forgiven of our sin uh, through the gospel of your Son. Lord, we thank you that you've called us here even this morning to uh, just to worship you and to serve you and to fellowship together, Lord. Uh, we pray that our worship would be right, that our hearts would be right before you. Lord, we pray as we open your word that you would 
Do that which only you can do by it, that you would uh, open our hearts and our minds to hear what you would have us to, to, to hear and to do and to respond uh, rightly out of it as we, as we read it, Lord, as we look to this old letter, this old book of your Bible, as we are here far removed from Haggai or this temple or all of this that we'll consider this morning, just help us to see how it might even apply to us today, Lord. Do that which only you can do to encourage, to convict, to correct, Lord, and for those who might not know you, even to bring them to salvation, Lord. We thank you, we praise you, we love you. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you can have a seat. Well, seeing that uh, I'm not here preaching with you very often, I'm not going to spend too much time going through any background or introductory information um, on the book of Haggai. And in fact, this chapter, there's a lot in there. Um, We're not going to go into detail in every little thing. We'll have more of a, maybe a big picture view of this chapter of the the text. Um, But I will refer you to Josh, uh, Pastor Josh preached through Haggai in his entirety a couple years ago, and he went into a lot of detail there. So if you find yourself so interested or inclined, I would uh, refer you to look back at at his series through it, and you can get a lot more information uh, on the book. With that, though, just as a way of kind of introduction, a little bit at least, um, at least to give a little history in the context of where we are in this book and the history of God's people. Um, as I'm sure most of you are aware, uh, God had for several years uh, warned that judgment would come upon his people because of their sin. He, he sent the prophets and he continually warned them if they would not repent of their sins, that judgment would come, and judgment finally did come, uh, particularly to Judah, uh, by way of the Babylonian army, who who captured them, who conquered them, who destroyed their temple, and took them, many of them, off into exile for a number of years. And in time, in the time that God had allotted for their exile, he allowed them back into, called them back into their land, and allowed them to rebuild their temple. And they began to build their temple, but the building soon ceased and remained stagnant for several years. And it's important as we go through and we look and we consider these things this morning, it's important for us to understand uh, the importance of the temple, at least in part. We don't have time to go through all of the details of the temple and all that it means, but, but it's important that we understand that the temple represents God's presence among his people, and therefore it stands as the center of worship for the covenant people of God. And so the, the, the importance of this earthly structure that we're going to talk about and read about, this earthly temple, the importance of that in the lives of God's people cannot be overstated. It is, is a significant part of the people of God. Now, in Haggai, there are various themes that run throughout the book, and many of them are highlighted, even though we won't go into all the detail. You will see it, hopefully, as we go through this chapter. Um, different themes that run about or run through uh, the, the book as a whole that teach us important truths about God, uh, important truths about God's people, and about God's interaction with and his relationship to and with his people. In Haggai, we learn about God's sovereignty and his divine providence, everything that has occurred to, uh, in the lives of these people, everything from their, from their being conquered and taken into exile and being called out of exile and called to rebuild the temple, everything that has happened has been according to God's sovereign will, plan, and purpose. There, there was no accidents. There's nothing that God's trying to recover from or fix. It is all according to God's sovereign plans and purposes. And 
The same holds true even today in every aspect of life. Haggai teaches us that God is holy, and he demands holiness and purity among his people. Uh, we're told in a few places in scripture, several places, I suppose, that, that God is holy, and he says, I am holy, and therefore you, my people, be holy. And so, though we have the issue of sin that we deal with, we are still called to strive to be a people of holiness and purity of life as we reflect God's goodness and glory in the world. Haggai teaches us that there's both physical and spiritual work that's necessary in the lives of God's people. It's, uh, that's something that's maybe misunderstood or even neglected at times, but, but uh, there, there's obviously, of course, there's much spiritual work on our hearts and our minds and all, but there's also physical. There's things that we are called to do in, lives as, in life as God's people, and this comes about both by and through the sovereign power of the Lord. Haggai teaches us also that God is ever faithful concerning his promises to his people. What he has promised to do, he will do. And in fact, they're being called out of exile and called to rebuild this temple and everything that happens again is uh, not only a picture of God's sovereignty, but also a picture of God's faithfulness to do as he has said that he would do. Now, if there's a single unifying or overarching theme in the prophet's message, I think we could say it comes in regard to the temple. And it would be this, that restoration of the temple and of proper worship practices will mediate God's presence among his people. You see, throughout, through Haggai, we, we come to, again, understand the importance of the temple throughout the history of God's people. You see, the entirety of the temple, everything about it, the temple and temple worship, everything that occurred in and around the temple had great implications concerning the people of God and their relationship to God and even for the surrounding world as well. The temple, in large part, it really it gave a, 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 a picture, it gave a tangible explanation of the one true and living God, of his provision for sinners and being reconciled to him and in the way they were to approach him. And all of this, all of this, all the while, points to a, a greater fulfillment in Jesus Christ, the one who would Come, the one who, everything about this temple, again, all of the worship practices, the offerings, the sacrifices, everything that occurred in and around the temple was a foreshadow, it was a picture of the one who was to come, the true and greater temple, Jesus Christ, the one who fulfills all those things. And we'll talk a little bit more about that as we go. So as we, as we discuss the text here, as we go through Haggai, um, we're going to do so under four subheadings, if you will. And um, so if you're a note taker, if you want to take a note or, or whatever, um, we're going to go under four subheadings. We'll see first the priorities of the people. Uh, we'll consider the predicament of the people, how they're faring at the time. We'll see God's plea to the people, how he responds to them, and then God's promise to the people there. And then we'll try again, we'll try to, at the end, conclude by saying, you know, how does this apply to us here, far removed from Haggai, far removed from a physical earthly temple? How does this come to bear on our lives as well? Now, before we begin, just very briefly, there's just two things I want to kind of throw out there to, um, maybe just to keep in mind um, as we make our way through the text there. Um, one is this, that, uh, you know, there's a very great difference between doing the wrong thing while thinking that it's right versus doing the wrong thing knowing that it's wrong. You know, it, it's quite different 
when I, if I am doing the wrong thing, but maybe I misunderstood or misled or mistaught, and I, I, I want to do what's right, and I'm trying to do what's right, but I'm doing what's wrong because I don't know, versus knowing that something is wrong and just continuing on in that wrongfulness. Okay, so keep that in mind. And then secondly, you know, I just want to throw out the question here or, or the thought is, what is worship? Because everything about this that we're going to talk about centers on worship. What is worship? You know, unfortunately, I think many, we will associate worship as, I came to church Sunday morning and uh, many, sadly, will associate worship as I sang songs to God, I worshiped, and you know, now we're reading God's word together. Or even just the whole Sunday morning uh, service, we'll, we'll just say, oh, that's worship. I went to worship and that's it. However, nothing could be further from the truth. You know, worship is an all-encompassing characteristic of our lives. And I, I want to, um, since we're going to really, I'm, I'm, I hope that you'll see how that plays out in our text, but I, I want to offer you a, a, a somewhat of a definition that John Piper wrote on what worship is. I think is really helpful and really, really hits the nail on the head, if you will, here. He says, this is what Piper says. He says, the essence of worship is being satisfied in God and cherishing Christ as gain. It's doing the will of God, or he says, doing the will of God is the outshining of God and his glory. This is let your light so shine before men that they may see your good deeds and give glory to your Father in heaven. And here's what he says, he says, all of life is the outshining of what you truly value and treasure and cherish. Therefore, all of life is worship, either of God or of something else. You see, what you value and treasure in your heart that's what shines forth from your life. That's, that's worship. It's either of God, that Christ is the one that you ultimately value and treasure in your heart, and that's going to shine forth from your life in every aspect of your life, at church, uh, at work, at school, wherever you may be, or it's of something else. So keep those things in mind as we go along, and I think I'll try to refer back to those things as we, as we go. So let's start here, and let's just consider the priorities of the people in this first chapter. I'm going to read again just verses 1 through 11, just so we have it, uh, if you want to read along, just so we have it in mind here, as it gives us this picture here. It says, in the, again, In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua the son of Jehozadak the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say that the time is not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat but never have enough. You drink but never have your fill. You clothe yourselves but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it, and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and on the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. So, we begin there with the word of the Lord coming on the first day of the month. I'm going to suggest that this is a day of surreal celebration, a day of surreal celebration. The reason I say that is because this first day of the month is the New Moon Festival. It's a time that was marked by 
celebration and worship of the Lord. It's a time of public worship. It's a time when offering and sacrifices were made. Uh, Trumpets were, I believe, blown over the, the sacrifices. It's a time of rejoicing in the Lord. Oftentimes it's associated with the Sabbath, and so work and trade would cease. The uh, gate of the inner court of the temple would remain open, which was generally reserved for the priests. This perhaps maybe offering a sense of inclusion in, in worship. And so, you know, what we get, if we, if we think about that, what we get is a, a really a, a picture of great worship, you know, before the, the Lord, this time of offering, sacrifice, worship, rejoicing in the Lord. However, what we need to understand is that God, not only does he deserve and demand Uh, proper worship, but he's also particular in how he is to be worshipped. And and we see this in the scriptures, we see this in the instructions concerning, uh, sorry, times such as these, when he gives instruction and how they were to go about these celebrations. We see that in his instruction concerning the building of the tabernacle and the temple. He's very particular in how everything was to uh, be constructed and how they were to fulfill these worship practices and all. We see it, uh, again, in his direction concerning the temple worship practice. And, and in all of it, um, you know, we're to understand that above all else, it's not simply God creating a checklist for us to check off the boxes and so that we can uh, you know, worship according to his rules. But above all else, we are to do these things uh, with a heart that is right before the Lord doing all of the actions apart from a right heart, a right, a, a heart of worship, a heart that cherishes God and values God above all else is really a burden before the Lord. And you see that in various places in scripture. Um, one that comes to mind is Jeremiah chapter 7. If you're familiar there, you can jot that down and go read it if you're not. But there, the people would come into the temple and it would say that they would stand there and they'd say, this is the temple of the Lord. You know, we're delivered. And and God says, you know, would you, could these people, hearts full of sin, God says, would you, will you really go out and will you, will you lie and will you cheat and will you, will you commit adultery and will you do these things and then will you stand in my temple that's caused by, called by my name and say, we're delivered, this is the temple of the Lord. You see, doing the, the deeds without a heart full of love and devotion and commitment to the Lord means absolutely nothing. And so God is particular in how he is to be worshipped, but above all else, the heart of the worshiper needs to be right before the Lord. So with that in mind then, you know, realize that these people at this time are observing this, they're observing this that God has called them to do without the temple and so apart from proper God-instructed, God-honoring worship. And this has been a reality for many, many years at this point. You see in Ezra chapter 3, you can go back and you can read how the people returning to to Judah, they're given the right, the authority to rebuild the temple. They rebuild the altar, they lay the foundation, but, but then they stop building. And, and why? And there, there may have been initially some social, political reasons perhaps, but by the time that God speaks through Haggai, uh, probably somewhere around 16 years of observing these festivals and doing these things without a temple and thus proper worship has been occurring. You see, I mean, think about it, you know, there they are, the temple lies essentially in ruins, this, this that stands as the centerpiece of their religion and their worship, uh, that, that represents God's presence among them, and day after day they walk by and it just lies in ruins, and why did they not continue to build? And we're really not given a, uh, 
explicit uh, reason necessarily why they were doing what they're doing. But what we read here in the Really, the testimony of them by the Lord is, is really telling. In verse 2, if you look at, start in verse 2, he says there, These people say that the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. He addresses them there as my, or excuse me, he addresses them not as my people, but these people. He's giving a sense of displeasure in them. And again, just to reiterate, you know, we have to understand that God is concerned with proper worship, primarily concerning our hearts before him. So, worship of God, apart from a heart that is full of faith, and repentance, love, commitment, devotion, sincerity, concern for the proclamation of his truths and his gospel and for his glory, is really a burden and an abomination, it's even called, before the Lord. You can read that, for one, in Isaiah 1, chapter 10, or Chapter 1, verses 10 through 20, where God says, I can't bear with, you know, you're coming with sinful hearts. You come and, and, and you do these things, and, and I just can't bear it, he says. Now, let's think here for a moment and consider the heart of the people at this time. What is their priority in worship, and why were they not concerned with rebuilding the temple and restoring then right worship as God had called them to do? I'll offer a couple suggestions for us this morning. Was it complacency? You know, would they just, uh, you know, we'll get to it, you know, procrastination, complacency, it's, uh, we can do with or without. Uh, uh, we throw that word around a lot, I think, as Christians, or at least from time to time you hear that word complacent. Uh, an interesting definition for you of what complacency is, is feeling of contentment or self-satisfaction, like I'm okay, everything, I'm okay, I'm fine, you're fine, everything's fine. But combined with a lack of awareness of pending trouble or controversy. Something's wrong, you know, but eh, I'm fine. Everything's fine. Were they just complacent, perhaps? Maybe it was pride. Maybe it was pride in assuming that they could put off the rebuilding of the temple or do without it altogether, as if we, as if we, the, the worshipers, could determine the order and practice of worship. Remember, God is particular. He has laid out for them how they are to approach him, what they are to, uh, to do in their, in their worship. And it's pride in assuming, well, we don't really need the temple. You know, we can, we can do this on our own. We can figure out our own way. And, you know, sadly, that I think ties into the, the attitude of much of the church in the West and our culture today that, uh, that just tries to determine ourselves how we'll worship, where we'll worship, what God-glorifying worship is when God has uh, so spelled things out for us in Scripture. Remember, God is particular in how we are to approach him. Uh, Peter Verhoff, in his commentary, he makes a pretty good uh, point on this. He says, the real danger for the post-exilic community here was that they could have become accustomed to being without a temple, right? They could have they've just gotten used to not having a temple, and then spiritualized their religion. And he says, against this backdrop, Haggai delivers the message and urges the people to combine the spiritual realities of their covenantal relationship with the institutional realities of a rebuilt temple. You know, they could just spiritualize, well, we don't really need it. We can, do, you know, we can spiritualize these things. We can still do what God has told us to do, and we can do it in this way and, and whatever. But he says, no, you know, at this time in the history of God's people, they are called to combine those spiritual realities, but they are to play out in an instant. Insta, sorry again, an institutional way. God has given, sorry, Albert. They've uh, God has given them instruction with their temple and how they are to worship God. Maybe it was as Calvin, John Calvin, the 
Protestant reformer there, he, he suggests that it's the sin of ingratitude towards God that they had. He, this is what he says. He says, but as liberty to build the temple was given to the Jews, we may gather from what our prophet says that they were guilty of ingratitude towards God. For private benefit, right, for their own benefit, was everyone almost exclusively regarded, and there was hardly any concern for the worship of God. We're concerned with ourselves, but not with the worship of God in his temple. Hence, the prophet now reproves this indifference, allied as it was with ungodliness. And this is what, he, what Calvin says here, is he says, For what could be more base than to enjoy the country and the inheritance which God had formerly promised to Abraham, and yet to make no account of God, nor of that special favor which he wished to confer, that of dwelling among them. You know, what could be worse than to say, we want to enjoy all the benefits that God has, has you know, given to us with no thought or no account of that very special, the, the, the ultimate favor that he wants to confer upon his people, I will be with you. You know, I will be with you. Well, we want all the benefits, God, but, you know, you can stay where you're at. We, you know. What could be worse than that? Well, we see that the priority of the people, rather than being directed and concerned with the Lord, was focused primarily upon themselves. When he says there in verse 4, if you look at your Bible, he says, is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Uh, this is, it's, it's further understood there, this, this idea, this reality, um, in the actions that describe the people as we read through there. They're sowing and they're harvesting, they're eating and they're drinking, they're clothing themselves and they're earning wages, they're, you know, they're living life. You know, they're, they're just living life, going about their business with really no, no concern as to the state of their religion and the temple of their God. Now, the importance here, or the important aspect uh, of the text here, I believe, is not in the presentation of their own houses, as, as maybe some might think. When it says that they dwell in their paneled houses, it's not, uh, the, the, uh, the point is not that they live in some sort of glorious dwellings. The point is more that they are finished, that they're completed, that they're covered, you know, that they've taken care of their own uh, necessities there, yet the house of the Lord stands essentially in ruins, still uncompleted uh, after so many years without any concern as to the significance of even finishing it. You know, the time has not yet come for the rebuilding of the house of the Lord. And, you know, this attitude of heart that we see, it stands really in, a, in stark opposition of another in scripture that maybe it sounds familiar, maybe it even comes to your mind as it, as it does mine here, and that is of uh, David's comments concerning the ark of God. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 1 and 2, uh, David, this is what David says about the ark of God, which represented the presence of God among his people. He says this, he says, or it says this, Now when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. You see the difference there with David? He says, you know, here I am in my kingly palace or whatever it is in my, in my home. I have everything met. God has been gracious to me and to us and given us all these things. But God's are, you know, God essentially in the ark is dwelling in a tent. And, and his heart is saying, this, something's wrong here. You know, this should be opposite. I should be in the tent while God is in the palace. But you see with the people here, they're more concerned with themselves. Is it time for you 
to uh, you know, live in your paneled house, your finished houses, is a time for all of your necessities to be met, your priorities to be met, but yet the, uh, the temple of God sits there in ruins. There. Well, let's, uh, with that, let's change direction, or well, continue, I suppose, and we see there the priorities of the people being off, not centered on God and proper worship and all. Well, let's see, let's consider for a moment then how they are faring here. Let's consider the predicament of the people. What, are, what is life like for them um, as they're living like this? Well, as the Lord addresses his people here, we do get some insight, as we read there, on their experiences and how they've fared as they've neglected the temple and busied themselves with their own priorities. Uh, you can look through the, uh, through the verses there, but, but you see it there. It says that they sow, but they harvest little. They eat, but it's never enough. They drink, but they never have their fill. They clothe themselves, but they're never warm. They work for wages, but it doesn't suffice. They look for much, it comes to little. They bring it home, he blows it away. You see, what's going on, their predicament, their experience, if you will, is really a result of the judgment of God towards them, or if you want to think of it as the discipline of God, but it's the judgment of God towards them, and this judgment can be experienced really in a couple of ways. I think we can, we can state it here. One, one is that God may withhold the blessing from them. Um, he withholds his blessing from them. As their priorities are focused on self rather than God and worshiping him and living rightly for him, loving him with all of their heart, soul, mind, and strength and having him first, as they busy themselves with, with themselves, he may withhold the blessing. And you get a picture of this actually in a couple places in Deuteronomy 28. I won't read the whole chapter there, but there the Lord expresses those covenant blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience. If you obey, he is going to give the blessing. If there's disobedience and breaking those, uh, breaking those commands and all, uh, that there would be curses. And the curses that are listed there are, are really similar to the experience of the people here, if you go back and read it. Um, one I will read to you that is very, it sounds almost identical, is in Micah chapter 6, verse 13 to 15, where God says essentially the same thing as what's happening to the people here. He says, therefore, in Micah 6, he says, therefore, I strike you with a grievous blow, making you desolate because of your sins. You shall eat but not be satisfied, and there shall be hunger within you. You shall put away but not preserve what you preserve. And what you preserve, excuse me, I will give to the sword. You shall sow but not reap. You shall tread olives but not anoint yourselves with oil. You shall tread grapes but not drink wine. And so one way in which God may dole out this judgment or discipline or or what have you, is through withholding of a blessing. But another way that God seems to judge men is that rather than withholding the blessing and the provision, is that he removes the satisfaction of them. Eating, drinking, clothing, working, seeking, but never having enough, never being satisfied. And this really brings up a, a, a really practical point that I'm sure a great many of us, maybe all of us, have experienced at some point or another and can appreciate the fact that sin, as it's been called somewhere in some way, I don't remember where, but sin has been noted as being something as to a, a great, the, the great bottomless pit. You know, it, it just, you never hit the end. You know, you give yourself over to whatever, self or whatever it may be, and there's never an end. It's a never satisfying satisfaction. 
Uh, I think Hebrews 11.25 kind of hits this with Moses when it says that there that Moses rather choosing rather God and his people to be mistreated with and identifying with God and his people chose that rather than the fleeting pleasures of sin that were offered in Egypt, you know, rather than those things that were fleeting. They're never satisfying. Um, Augustine, of course, very famously Augustine, I'm sure most of you have heard the the quote there that, that where he says that uh, you have made us for yourselves, O God, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. The point is, is that we were made for God and anything else that we give ourselves to trying to fulfill and satisfy, it, it never will. You, there always needs to be more. Uh, sin, whether it's idolizing self and self-priorities or, or some sort of whatever other source of sin, God removes, if you will. There is no satisfaction in those things. You know, our hearts are made for God. We are made for God. This was, um, well, just go with me here. This point was, uh, was wonderfully pictured in a very familiar scene of the highly theological docudrama, The Pirates of the Caribbean, The Curse of the Black Pearl. Okay, it was not a theological docudrama, but it does. But there's a scene in that movie that does highlight this point uh, very wonderfully, and I'm I'm sure they didn't know that they were highlighting this point when they wrote the script. But I'm going to read it to you, and maybe you remember. And I'm going to try my hardest to refrain from doing so in my best pirate voice, but um, it really highlights this point here. Okay, um, there's a there's a scene in the movie where Elizabeth, as if you've seen the movie, I'm sure most of you have, I, I would imagine, but there's a, there's a scene in the movie where Elizabeth is there with Captain Barbosa in his quarters, and there's all the food, and, and he has the, the medallion, and he says, you know, do you know what this is? And, and she says, it's a pirate medallion. And Captain Barbosa, he says, he says, this is Aztec gold. He says, it's one of 882 identical pieces they delivered in a stone chest to Cortez himself. Blood money paid to stem the slaughter he wreaked upon them with his armies. But the greed of Cortez was insatiable. So the heathen gods placed upon the gold a terrible curse that any mortal that removes but a single piece from the stone shall be punished for eternity. Elizabeth says, I hardly believe in ghost stories anymore, Captain Barbosa, to which she replies. He says, I... That's exactly what I thought when we were first told the tale. Buried on an island of the dead, what cannot be found except for those who know where it is. Find it we did, there be the chest, inside be the gold, and we took them all. And here it is, he says, we spent them, we traded them, we frittered them away on drink and food and pleasurable company. The more we gave them away, the more we came to realize the drink would not satisfy. Food turned to ash in our mouths and all the pleasurable company in the world would not slake our lust. We're cursed men, he says, compelled by greed, but now we are consumed by it. And he goes on to tell her how the curse can be undone. But there it is, you see, I mean, that is, uh, that is sin, uh, the experience of sin. It's a never satisfying satisfaction. And so in the life of the people here, as they prioritize self, even though it, it, there, there may not be some you know, grievous sins that we're reading of there. They're just living life. But the fact is that not prioritizing God and not worshiping God and not having God first in life is in fact a sin. So any type of sin, there is never going to be that satisfaction and fulfillment that we need. There's a quote by, uh, well, it's attributed to Charles Spurgeon. It sounds Spurgeonish. I don't know if he actually said this or anything, but it's a quote attributed to him that says this on, on this one, and then I'll, I'll quit. But it, he says, uh, 
Oh, listen, my friends, Satan is a beautiful liar. Sin will always cost you more than you intended to pay. It will take you further than you intended to go, and it will keep you longer than you intended to stay. You can't eat at the devil's table without getting food poisoning. You cannot warm yourself at the devil's fire without getting burned. You see, and so you see the, the people here as they have, again, as they have just put off, you know, worshiping God rightly as he has called them to, as, as they put off prioritizing God first in their hearts and, and prioritize self and doing these other things and not living a life, you know, saturated as a life of worship outside of their Sunday morning and all, um, their predicament, well, they've fared uh, not too well. Well, it's into this context into this time and the experience that the Lord then sends his message and we we read this this plea of God to his people. He says through the prophet Haggai there, uh, not only uh, rebuking them for for the way they're living, but also insisting that they would consider their ways, that they would consider their ways. In verse 5 and verse 7, both if you look at at your Bible, it it repeats, thus says the Lord of hosts, thus says the, the sovereign God, consider your ways. You know, it's Excuse me, it's not only a rebuke for neglecting to prioritize the rebuilding of the temple and restore proper worship, uh, or neglecting seeking after the Lord to mediate his presence among them through that temple, you know, that, that what we already spoke of, that sinful, prideful arrogance and assuming that we could either worship on our own terms or do with or without certain things that... Um, you know, but it's a, it's a plea for them here, if you will, to actively reflect on their actions and the state of their lives, uh, taking a special consideration to their heart, their sentiment towards uh, the Lord here. You see, the word of God there, when it says to consider your ways, it, it, he's not, it, it's not simply implying, it's not implying a simple momentary recollection, you know, it's not consider your ways. Well, you know, th- things could be better. They've been better. No, it's a, he's, he's calling on them. The, the point here is that there would be serious consideration that you would apply heart and mind to seek to understand the direction and the motivation of their lives. You know, uh, there's some other scriptures. I'm just going to have a handful, but I'm just going to share a couple. There's a hu- couple scriptures that it's not the same language, but it's similar in conveying this, this point here, okay? So um, I'll give you just two in the Exodus, both from the Exodus. In the Exodus, as Moses uh, and Aaron first confront Pharaoh uh, concerning, and they're going to issue forth that first plague of the turning the Nile River to blood, to blood. They, they come before Pharaoh, and they say, you know, uh, God says, let, my, let his people go so we can worship and serve him as he's called us to. And, you know, Pharaoh, he says, ah, you know, who is this God? I'm not listening to this God. I don't need to listen to this God. And, well, I'm sure you know the story. And the, Moses goes out and strikes the river and it turns to blood. Really a fantastic event, something that should have caught his attention, you know. Um, but what you read there in Exodus 7, 22 and 23, it says, Pharaoh's heart remained hardened and he turned and went into his house and he did not take even this to heart. Again, he should have, you know, that should have caused him to say, whoa, hold on a minute, wait a minute, you know, these guys are coming and they're saying, you know, I see what's going on over here with, with these people and, and this God is wanting them and now this happened. You know, it should have caused him to really think and consider what is going on here. Something is wrong, right? Again, in the ninth chapter of the Exodus, as Pharaoh's told about the hail, this other play, this hail, this great hail was going to come and it's going to any men, any people, any livestock that are in the field would, would perish because of it. 
what we read in Exodus 9, 20, and 21, as it says, you get kind of a contrast here. The one among Pharaoh's servants who feared the word of the Lord made his servants and livestock flee into the houses. And so, of course, they would live. But he who paid no regard to the word of the Lord left his servants and his livestock in the field. You see, you get kind of a contrast. One hears what's coming. One is confronted there and, and takes, oh, well, hey, maybe I should, I see what's been going on here. Maybe I need to really apply myself to this and make some changes and get my people and my cattle out of it so we'll live. The other one says, eh, you know, whatever. Who is this God? Or, or it, you know, pays no regard to that. And the opposite happens. And so, anyway, this, uh, the point is, hopefully we can understand, is that this call, this command to, when God says, consider your ways, it's not just insisting on mental recollection, just a quick little thought, but serious heart-searching scrutiny of life, both the priorities and the motivation in regard to the Lord. And, you know, we could even ask ourselves at this point, I think, a question we could ask ourselves is, you know, do my priorities, do my motivations align with the life that God has called us to in light of the gospel, you know? Um, But we'll come back to that a little bit at the end. Now, not only does God call them to consider, to think about their, you know, what's going on in their life here, but he immediately calls them to action in light of that, right? They are to start or they're to continue the work that would please and glorify God. In verse 8 of Haggai there, you see, he calls them, consider your ways, consider your ways, and then go up to the hills and bring wood that, and build the house that I might take pleasure in it and that I might be glorified, says the Lord. Now, he calls them to action. However, it's, I have to make it clear, at least I think we have to make it clear, that it's not a call to do in order to please God. It's not a call to, well, do these things so that I will accept you, so that I will save you. Um, there's never the, the insinuation in Scripture, of course, that, uh, that we need to work and do that we might be accepted by God. It's actually quite the opposite, isn't it? We are called as God's people, accepted by him solely on the work of his son, solely on his own grace and the redemption that he accomplishes, to be a people in light of that, of godly action to please and glorify him and proclaim his name in the world. There's a, um, I know Pastor John mentioned this within the last couple of weeks because we kind of brought up the same thing in our college group with the students, but uh, something similar. But there's a, maybe you've heard it said, I've heard it said by uh, many times, um, <clears throat> but there is a, uh, there's an oughtness about the Christian life, you know? It's not that I, that I work necessarily to please God, to earn salvation so that he'll be happy with me. I'm not doing so that, so that he will save me and accept me. He's saved me and accepted me solely on the, the work of Christ. But in light of that, I ought to do certain things. I ought to live in a certain way. I ought to worship him. I ought to love him and serve him and love you and serve you. And I, you know, I ought to be a good worker and husband or wife or student or whatever. I ought to do these things, not because they gain acceptance or gain the love of God or salvation, but because of what he's done for me, I'm to act rightly in the world. And, and really, again, that's what we're going to see here in just a moment. Something, uh, something I want to mention here that, that I've learned personally, and I, I believe, and perhaps you, most of you would agree, and many have said this as well, is that, um, you know, we, we never have an experience with the Lord without it having an effect. You know, I, I cannot come before the Lord of all creation and 
it not have some sort of effect on my heart and on my life. And this, of course, happens at least our side of the cross through the reading and the proclaiming of God's word. Um, but I cannot come into the presence of God, as it were. I cannot be confronted with the living word of God and not have it some, have some sort of effect on my heart and my life, right? And if you would hear that um, and think to yourselves that, that the word of God has no effect on you, you can... You can probably be certain that in reality you are only being hardened more to uh, the word of God. But you see, this is, I think, what we're really seeing occur right here in Haggai. They are confronted you know, on their sin and, and their priorities and everything that's happening. They're called to consider, to repent you know, of those things and make those changes and then respond correctly. And that's exactly what we see them, it seems, doing there. They're confronted by God. They repent of those things that are wrong, and then they're moved to godly action in light of that because it's had that effect on their heart. And their response, their, what they do, I think we could sum it up here and really in three, just very briefly, three actions that we see there. They obey the voice of the Lord, they fear the, the Lord, and then they come and they, they work. It says in verse 12 there, if you look at your Bible, it says, Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shelatiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent him, and the people feared the Lord. And so they first, they obey the Lord. And just like we just said, you know, I mean, you, you, you cannot be confronted by the word of God and it not have an effect. And so they did. And so there's, there's two choices, you know, they're confronted. You, you need to consider your ways, your priorities are wrong. You need to you prioritize God and his worship in, in, in your life, in the temple here in their context and all. But uh, you need to do that. There's obedience or there's disobedience. The people obey the Lord. There's only, there's always only two options. You know, it's always my response to the Lord, even for us today and even now, right now, as we open God's word and we read God's word and we hear God's word, there's only two options. There's only obedience and there's only, or there's disobedience. You know, I can either obey what God is telling me to do and live accordingly and act, you know, respond accordingly, or I disobey. And if I would assume that I live outside of that reality, or if I assume that I can remain complacent, or I can say, this doesn't apply to me, or, or, or I'll get to it later, or I'll start this next Saturday, it's either obedience or it's disobedience. Anything short of obedience is disobedience. There's no middle ground there. And so the people, again, being confronted by the Lord, by the message of the, by the word of the Lord, thus says the Lord through the prophet there. They're confronted, they're convicted, they respond rightly by obeying the voice of the Lord. And then secondly, they it says the people feared the Lord. And of course, I mean, I'm sure you know, but I'm going to say it anyway. It, it doesn't mean, of course, fear as in like we're afraid of the boogeyman. You know, it's not, oh, we did these things and God's going to crush us. And certainly there's a, a, a measure of fear. This is the God of the universe who created all things by his own word, who with a, one breath or even a thought could destroy all things. Certainly there is, a, I suppose there could be an aspect of fear, but that's not when the scriptures usually typically talk about the fear of the Lord. It's talking about the way we approach him. Right, The way that we worship him and regard him with a reverential fear because of who he is, all that he is, and all that he has done. And so the people obey the voice of the Lord, they fear the Lord, and then they come and they work on the house of the Lord their God in verse 14. They're moved to godly action. And to say it again, 
It's not in a sense of penance or working for acceptance, right? It's not, I did these bad things, now I have to do these good things so that God will love me and accept me. <coughs> Excuse me. It's not working for his acceptance. It's because they had been transformed in heart by the Lord. It's because they had been convicted and, and now they were going to be repent and they were going to be moved to godly action. Well, so God's plea to the people. So what we've seen God's, uh, the priorities of the people, the predicament, how they're going about. We've seen God's plea and how they respond. So let's uh, consider then the, the fourth subheading there, God's promise to the people before we conclude here. So let's read verses 13 through 15 um, really quick. If you want to look at your Bible with me, verses 13 through 15 says, Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehoshaphat, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. So in in response to the people's response, if you will, The Lord here makes a wonderful promise to them. I am with you, declares the Lord. And this is not so much, shouldn't be so much understood in the fact that God would be with them to help them finish their work, although that is true, and it's mentioned in the text, that is true. But this is more, again, that special favor. It's assuring that special favor that God had promised. The ever-faithful, covenant-keeping God, my presence will be with you. I will be with you in your midst. You know, behold I am with you. And again, this is the great promise of the Lord then and even now that he would dwell among his people, that that they and that we would be his people and he would be our God and that all of the promises that he has made would be mediated and assured by his presence among them and, and even among us. This is what you read throughout the, the Exodus. If you're familiar, you know, I will take you and I will make you my people and I will dwell among you. And he calls them to build the tabernacle and says, my presence will be with you. That which this later was replaced by the temple, that signifying God's dwelling among his people, that God is with them. In fact, there's a, there's in the Exodus in chapter 33, there's a, a great little, on that note, there's a great little, um, well, it's a very interesting little point that's made or, or, conversation, if you will, between Moses, well, uh, the people sin against God, and Moses goes up to, to intercede on behalf of the people, and God says, uh, well, just go, you and these people just go, but my presence, I'm not going with you. And if you're familiar with, with that passage of scripture, you know that, and I'll loosely paraphrase, but Moses, you know, he says, you know, if you're not going to go with us, then what's the point? Don't even take us up here. You know, how, how are people going to know that we're distinct, us, you know, your people, isn't not from you being with us? You know, if, if God, if you're not going to go with us, what's the point? I mean, why even go? And God, of course, does go with them. But you see, this is the, the great promise of the Lord. It's that you know, of all the blessings that we, that we are promised and given, I think the greatest promise and motivation to live a life of right worship for God day in and day out, moment by moment, living for God in his glory is the fact that he says, I will be with you. You know, my presence will be with you. And Christ, of course, promises the same. You know, one day, though he is with us in one way now, one day, you know, that promise remains that you will go into his presence and glory for all of eternity. You know, heaven is 
wonderful because Christ is there, because God is there. You know, that's the greatest motivating factor, I think, that we can have in our hearts for why we should live for God and his glory. I will be with you. You are my people. I am your God, and you will be with him for all of eternity. And then um, we read there that the Lord stirs up the people, that they would come and work on the house of the Lord. And uh, so not only would God be with them, but then again, he would motivate them. He would empower them to do the work which he has called them to do. And, And we read similar statements like that in other parts of the scripture. The fact is that as God calls people to do, uh, whatever God calls us to do, he calls his people there to do, whatever God commands and calls to do, the fact is that he equips and empowers to do so. To quote Augustine again, he very famously says, Lord, command what you will and grant what you command. You know, whatever God calls for you to do, whatever God calls them to do, calls us to do, the fact is, is that God equips and empowers us to do. He gives the grace necessary to do those things which he calls us to do. So, in uh, as we wrap up here this morning, again, let's try to take a moment really quickly, really briefly, and, um, you know, here we are. It's a great story, Haggai, I think. Um, but here we are, far removed from Haggai, far removed from an earthly temple and and worship practices and all of those things that occurred so long ago, you know, how are we to take this and apply it to us, or does it apply to us? Well, I think I think as we, if we just kind of really briefly, very quickly, just go back through some of these major points, we can see how really everything that we've read does, in fact, relate to us in some way. We can we can relate. There are timeless timeless truths in God's Word that continue to apply. Uh, even for us today. So, for one, just as God was then concerned with proper worship, right? Then, in their context, it was through the, through the temple and the temple worship practices. But just as God was concerned with proper worship among his people, so he is today. And yes, we don't, uh, our worship is not conducted in a physical temple, in a particular location, but through the true and greater temple, Jesus Christ. He is the one through whom we approach and worship the Father. The church is called the new and living temple, the dwelling place of God through the Spirit, both personally but also corporately as we gather together. Jesus uh, talks about this. He addresses this in John 4 with the woman at the well. If you know the story there, he says that the Father is seeking people to worship him, not in this place and that place, but in spirit and in truth. And so we are called to worship God through the Spirit, through Christ, the one who uh, makes way for us to enter into the presence of God, if you will. Secondly, just as the priorities of the people were wrong, well, the priorities of worship focusing on self rather than focusing on God and having light, uh, worship be a, uh, being a characteristic of all of our life and in every aspect, uh, not just Sunday morning, but everywhere, um, just as God is... is concerned about the priorities of the people because they were wrong there. We too, we can be guilty of those, those same types of things, I think, in our worship, especially if we attempt to make worship and our, even worse, our church service, if you will, person-centered rather than God-centered because our worship should always be focused on God. It should always be God-centered. And we could be guilty of those same, those same types of things that we talked about with them. You know, the, the pride, in assuming that we can determine the practices of right worship or that we can tolerate and do with or without 
certain things. Um, ingratitude, that same ingratitude, enjoying all of the freedom for us, enjoying all of the freedom from the debt of our sin that, that, that Christ you know, earns on our behalf without making him the full center of our joy, pleasures, and desires. And then the self-centeredness, you know, we can be guilty of that as well, looking, looking to uh, being overly concerned primarily with our own comforts and wants and ideals and pleasures rather than focusing first on the Lord. All of this, all of this is wrong priorities, and ultimately all of it is a display of idolatry as we're taking our eyes, we're removing God from his place as center and first in heart and life and transferring it to someone, to somewhere else. We can understand and we can relate to the predicament of the people uh, as well, can't we? Um, we can experience the same, the same in God's withholding of blessing, uh, probably mostly in our case, I think, spiritual speaking for the most part, lack of, lack of joy, lack of growth in our Christian experience, right, as we, our priorities are wrong, or, or in the dissatisfaction of life experiences as we, as we search for meaning and contentment apart from worship and fellowship with the law of the Lord, that which we were created for. We were created by God and for God to have fellowship and communion with him, to live a life of worship with him. And again, as we mentioned earlier, um, we will never find that full satisfaction and contentment when we're looking for it in the wrong places. And then, in light of all of this, uh, the same promise remains when we confess our sins and repent before the Lord. I am with you. You know, we, are, we can be reassured of God's presence, of his promises concerning our salvation. You know, as God took pleasure in the tabernacle and the temple, as he revealed his glory among his people, uh, he has fully and finally done so in the gospel of his son and in his church. God dwells with his people through his spirit, making known his glory in all the earth. You can, Ephesians 3, 10 through 12 uh, says that pretty pretty well there. And first John 1 9, we're 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 promised, we're we're assured there. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and he's just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He will be with us. And just as uh just as even we saw that God stirred the people to work, stirred them, empowered them to that godly action, the same holds true us as well. That which God calls men to do, people to do, he equips and empowers them to do. Philippians 2, 12 and 13, Paul, Paul says, makes that, uh, spells that out pretty well. He says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. You know, what God calls you to do, God empowers and gives the grace necessary to do, whether it's enduring through difficulty or it's simply worshiping him rightly in your heart. God has made every provision for his people in the gospel of his son, forgiveness of our sins, our entrance into the presence of the Father, the assurance of salvation, and his continual presence with us through his spirit, and the power through himself to live a life of godliness, resulting in blessing for us and glory to his name. So, in closing, if you are a Christian, I suppose I could encourage you, us, you know, to consider ourselves, are our, our, our priorities right? Is my life that which, as Piper had said, does it, does it show forth, does it outshine the fact that Christ is what I truly value and treasure uh, and hold most dear? Is, is that showing forth in my life? Is my life a life of worship? And not only Sunday mornings, but as I 
go to my neighborhood or I'm a student or I'm a worker or I'm a husband, a wife, a child, whatever it may be, in every aspect of life, is that what's showing forth from me? If it is, praise God. If not, well then, consider where, where we're falling short. Uh, repent and live for his glory, knowing that he's going to give you the grace to do so and knowing that, uh, that as you do, yeah, he will give you the grace to do so and that you can live a life of proper worship for his glory. If you don't know the Lord, if you're not a believer, then, uh, well, the truth is, is that really right now these things don't apply and you can't live for the glory of God because you still have your sin to deal with, but there's good news, of course. There's good news because God has made provision, as we've already mentioned, for your sin, that you can be made right with him. Jesus Christ, God the Son, the eternal God, the eternal Son of God, came into the world, the one, only one qualified who could do that which we could never do. We have been broken. We have, you know, God, again, he's particular in everything, and he calls us as his creation, as people made in his image, to live a life that reflects his glory perfectly, always. However, we sin and we fall short and, and we've, we've broken that uh, and, and we can't fix it on our own. We're not qualified. We have our own sin to deal with. But, but God makes provision in his son and the eternal son of God coming into the world, living that life, that perfect life, earning perfect righteousness, never sinning once in thought or word or deed, living a life fulfilling completely the scriptures, earning that righteousness that we we're called to, yet never could live up to. He does it himself. And then he goes to the cross and he suffers. And he dies. He takes the full penalty of sin on behalf of all who would ever believe in him. He's buried and he's resurrected to glory, thereby defeating sin and death and hell. And as you then put your faith in him, he, as it were, he switches accounts with you. And so as you turn to him and you confess your sin and you repent of your sin, then he, he, he has a where he switches accounts with you and you get credit for all of his righteousness. You can now have the promise that I will be with you and that you will go into glory with him because all of your sin was transferred to him on the cross and has been dealt with. And so for you, if you're listening to this or you're here and you don't know the Lord, then our prayer is that you would, even while we sing and pray, that you would just call out to God even now and that you would confess your sin and repent of your sin and then um, you know, come talk to one of us afterwards and we'd love to talk to you about that. With that, we're going to sing one more song. We're going to pray and we're going to have communion. And so just to briefly give the communion warning, um, if you, communion is one of the two ordinances that were left for the church, baptism and communion, and it's um, so something that we do as Christians. If you're not a Christian and if you have not been baptized, if you have not identified with Christ through baptism, we just ask that you would let the elements pass by. Um, we don't want you to eat or drink judgment upon yourselves, as the scripture says. So if you're a Christian and you're living a life for the glory of God, then praise God, we'd, we would invite you to go ahead and partake of communion with us, and uh, they'll pass that out in just a moment. So with that, let's go ahead and pray, and then we'll sing and do communion.